0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we come before you. We recognize that we're little children. We do not know how to come in or go out. So we come to you asking for your wisdom, for your grace. We need you. We pray that you will be with us today, and may we learn and grow, and may our commitment to you deepen. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we looked at kind of the pivotal year of 1844 in this country and in the history of this world. We looked at that on Monday. Then yesterday, we looked more specifically at my journey, my experience, and my family's roots in the Latter-day Saint movement and how that progressed and how the Lord led me out of that primarily through friendship evangelism. We'll unpack that more on Friday when we look at tips and ideas in reaching out to those in the Mormon faith. And so we're going to continue that, but we're also going to be looking at what I'm going to call a counterfeit movement. And so uh, in this counterfeit movement, the main idea that I want to be presenting is that the Mormon movement was a counterfeit or is a counterfeit to the remnant church. And I want to look at some of the reasons why I believe that, And then I also want to look at not just some of those reasons why, but uh, why I no longer am in that movement and why I believe we're a part of, uh, we need to be a part of the Remnant Church, what I believe is the Remnant Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And so um, as we look at that, I want to make some comparisons and some of the history to begin with. All right, so when we look at the history of Mormonism, and when we compare it to the history of Adventism, we see some striking parallels here. And so I want to look at William Miller's experience of uh, the Advent movement in the United States, and then look at how that parallels, how that corresponds uh, with Joseph Smith's experience as well. So William Miller was significantly older than Joseph Smith, about uh, 20-some years older, was born in 1782, and of course we're familiar with his life story, at least I hope we are. If we're not, we can read Great Controversy and lots of other Uh, excellent resources in regard to that he was raised in the church and then in the war of 1812 he recognized that they had to have been saved by a providential hand and so after the War of 1812, as he was thinking about it, he was, gave his heart to the Lord and found that even though he had all these deistic reasons, he found that the Bible met the needs of his heart. It presented Jesus, and Jesus was what he needed in his life. And so that led to his conversion. And as he was converted, then he began to study. And as he studied, we know that the topic that particularly fascinated him, he had determined to go through the Bible without commentaries, just studying and comparing verse with verse in order to understand the Bible. And as he is studying, he comes to the conclusion, particularly from the book of Daniel, that Jesus is coming soon. At first, he begins to say in about 25 years or something like that, and then he pinpoints it down first 1843 and then later to 1844. And so in 1818, just two years after his conversion, he was convinced in his own personal study that Jesus was coming soon. Now, he wrote that out in an essay, first of all, in 1822. Now, he did not start to preach about it yet. He wasn't sharing. He just was writing out some of his thoughts. And so he wrote out some of his thoughts there uh, from the book of Daniel, from his evidences, from history, from Scripture, and pointing to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel eight fourteen that Jesus was going to come, and of course, as he thought, going to cleanse the sanctuary of this earth with fire at his coming. And then in 1831, he first began to preach, and we know the famous story of how he wrestled with the Lord and uh, said that he wasn't going to go preach, and then he made an agreement with him that if he was asked to preach, if someone asked him, had never asked, nobody had asked this farmer to preach before, but if someone asked him, he would go share what he had been studying. And he had peace for about an hour, and then his nephew knocks on the door and says, we need someone to come and to preach. My father wants to know if you can share some of the things that you have been studying. And as the story goes, he goes out into that grove of trees and wrestles with the Lord for an hour before he surrenders and comes back and says, I will go. And so then he begins to share his uh, findings from Scripture. And as he does this, he begins to get more and more. And of course, the message begins to permeate through, uh, the North Atlantic states. And then Josiah Himes comes on board and becomes, uh, there's a lot more publicity that goes along with this message until we culminate in 1844. And of course, he was disappointed then. It was the bitter disappointment of his life. And, but he was not, did not give lose heart that Jesus was coming. He always believed that Jesus was coming soon. He could not explain his disappointment. He could not explain why it didn't happen like he thought. But he was determined to live for today and believe that Jesus was going to be here. Very soon, and of course, William Miller then dies in 1849. Not as not a Sabbath keeper, but a ardent believer in Jesus soon coming. And in early writings, we're told that the angels still watch the spot where uh, he was buried, waiting for that second coming. Now, this was William Miller, very Bible-based, and uh, the Bible was, in fact, the major component. That was what he was preaching. That was what he was studying. That was what he was sharing. You can see uh, at the Center of Adventist Research, uh, at the basement in the library at Andrews University, the James White Library, they have uh, William Miller's uh, Bible there and you can see how it's worn you can see that the book of daniel is probably where is the most worn but after the book of daniel they point out that the gospels are the second most worn part of his bible he was preaching jesus and prophecy combined and uh, that was a part of the power of the message. Now, Joseph Smith was born in 1805. And then he, we find in 1820, he has his first vision. As he was 14, he describes it later on, of uh, the Jesus and the Father both appeared to him. And as he was struggling in his mind, what church should I join? And the answer they gave was, don't join any church because they're all wrong. And so uh, that was what began his quest. Notice that in 1818, William Miller is convinced of the second coming, the nearness of the second coming from his studies of Scripture. In 1820, right around the same time, Joseph Smith's uh, visions begin. 1823, Angel Moroni's first visit to Joseph Smith. 1827, he is directed to and receives, according to the story, the golden plates from the hill Camorra uh, there in New York, and then in 1830, the Book of Mormon is published. Very interesting, the church is also organized, Church of Christ, uh, or I believe that was the name of it as it began in 1830 as well. And so you have the Mormon movement beginning really in 1830. I mentioned in 1831 my four-times-great-grandfather was baptized as a Mormon, and there were only 600 members at that time. So 1830, 1831, very few Mormons, but that is right when 1831, right when William Miller begins to preach and to share the Adventist message. So you can see these movements are, they're developing in tandem, and they begin to be promoted about the same time as well. There's, I just referred to that, 1830, the church is organized. And then in 1844, Joseph Smith is killed. And so what you have actually is, in both the great and the Advent movement, you have a great disappointment taking place in 1844, And in the Mormon movement, there's also a disappointment that takes place with the death of their prophet and priest and founder and president of the church there. Now, as I mentioned, I believe that this is a counterfeit remnant or a counterfeit to God's last day people. Now, let me go over some of these aspects. The Latter-day Saint movement believes that they are restoring the true gospel. So they believe that the gospel, the apostolic gospel, was lost over time, and that Joseph Smith was, has, was come to restore the true faith. Now, do we understand that the apostolic purity of the Christian faith diminished over time and was lost in the Dark Ages to a certain extent as well? Yeah. When we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about there must be a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed, there's a falling away from the truth in God's word, right? And then as we uh, study and as we bring out, there was a restoration of the biblical apostolic truth. And so the Mormon church is referred to as a restorationist church. Why? Because they were believing in the restoration of the gospel, the pure gospel, that had been lost through time. The Adventist churches also would be classified as a restorationist. There's a few others as well, Campbellite and um, a couple others in that category, that believe there's a restoration of the truth that has been lost. And so we have a parallel here. And so they believe that joseph smith has brought a restoring of the true gospel now i think it's important i think it's interesting to note at least that to look at some references of this and try to understand what it is that was being restored or was thought to be being restored during this time these are some this is actually from the uh, church of jesus christ.org their website restoration of the gospel the fullness of the gospel has been restored And the true church of Jesus Christ is on the earth again. No other organization can compare to it. It is not the result of a reformation with well-meaning men and women doing all in their power to bring about change. It is a restoration of the church established by Jesus Christ. It is the work of the Heavenly Father and His beloved Son. So they believe that their church is a restoration of the church of Jesus Christ and it's not done by man. So what they're saying there is it's not like the Reformation where Luther and Melanchthon and Knox and all these individuals came along and were discovering truth from the Bible and seeking to reform the church. No, they're saying what happened here is that wasn't good enough. Jesus came and restored the church personally through his messenger, through Joseph Smith. See another example of this? Almost every person, what is, now this is actually, what is the gospel as they understand it? And it's a little bit complicated. And I hope I'm not going to make it too complicated here. But um, what what do is the belief of the gospel and of salvation in the Latter-day Saint movement? Well, notice this statement. This is also from their website. I'm using either Uh, either official documents like the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine of Covenants or from their, their sources. So I want to be very fair to say what they are saying. Notice what it says. Almost every person who has ever lived on the earth is assured salvation from the second death. So what are they saying by this statement? Almost everyone is saved. Okay, that is what is being saved. Not complete universalism, that is everyone being saved, but close to complete universalism. And so I remember being taught as a boy, not exactly this form because this is a depiction for the uh, Latter-day Saint church in Utah, not the church I was a part of. And notice they believe in a premortal existence, but you don't remember that, and you come to this earth. So they believe in the idea of an immortal soul but most Christians believe in an immortal soul after you're born. They believe in an immortal soul before you're born and continuing afterward as well. So they believe that when someone is born it's a spirit that is coming from another planet and is born here. And so there's birth, there's death, and they go to a spirit world afterward. Now, what is this spirit world? They're going to refer to 1 Peter chapter 3, where it talks about spirits in prison. So that's what they would believe is the spirit world after death, where you can um, grow, you have a second chance, so to speak. It's similar to purgatory, except there's other ways that you get out of the spirit world. So... I'm sure that you have heard that the Mormon church practices baptism for the dead. And that is based primarily on a revelation from Joseph Smith, uh, but it's. there's a verse that they'll use in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, this entire paradigm is based on 1 Corinthians 13. I'll explain why as we get, as we get there. But the idea is that if you are baptized if a living person is baptized for someone proxy for the dead person and that person's name is given and they're baptized that will help them to get out of the spirit world that will help them to get out of the spirits in prison uh, as according to my understanding now i do th- this is a distinction the community of Christ, the RLDS that I was a part of, did not have baptisms for the dead and the temple rites. But this is where it, where it comes into. And then you have three kingdoms. And that's based, as Paul says in First Corinthians 15, that there's the glory, the celestial kingdom, and different things. So they kind of twist all of that. And so the celestial kingdom is the glory of the Son. The Father is there. The terrestrial kingdom is... Is the glory of the moon and uh, Jesus is there. And then the celestial kingdom, which is not in 1st, uh, well, none of it's really in 1st Corinthians 15, but that's an extra, even, uh, ex- even additional add on. Telestial kingdom is uh, the glory of the stars and the prophets are there. And so there's these different levels of uh, celestial kingdoms that you can be a part of. And then notice that statement we read, almost all will be saved from the second death. There's a few that go to outer darkness that would be the devil and those that are complete apostates from the true gospel. And so someone that knows the true gospel of Mormonism and then leaves that. Now, you've probably heard the idea that Mormons believe that they can become gods. And so that is referred to as exaltation. Let me read a couple official statements here so that we can understand what is being talked about. Because like I said, their view of the gospel is complicated. Most people are saved simply by Jesus' death. Then it depends which kingdom you get into based on what you do, essentially. But then there's the ultimate of exaltation, which is more specifically to the the Utah-based church that Brigham Young led, Um, But notice this is what it says, exaltation is eternal life, the kind of life God lives. He lives in great glory. He is perfect. He possesses all knowledge and all wisdom. He is the father of spirit children. He is a creator. We can become like our heavenly father. This is exaltation. So this idea of exaltation, we can become like our Heavenly Father in virtually every area is what it's saying. And so it's different. It's a different idea than uh, where Jesus says, be therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Uh, It's a different concept there because this is broader and in every aspect. This is based on the Doctrine of Covenants, which, of course, is where most of these doctrines come from. The Book of Mormon is not the primary source for doctrine. It's the primary source that is used in proselytizing, but it's not really the have a lot of codified doctrine in it. It's these extra visions that have that. And Doctrine of Covenants, you can see the reference there. Then they shall be gods because they have no end. Therefore they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then shall they be above all because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. And so this idea that you'll become gods, exactly what that means or uh, how it's all parsed out, I can't say exactly. Another, another reference regarding exaltation. How do you become exalted? So remember, the gospel or salvation is through Jesus' death, almost all escape the second death just because Jesus died. But then there's these three kingdom levels, and based on what you do is where you end up. And then the ultimate celestial glory, you grow to become like God, the ultimate exaltation. So how do you, how do you experience this exaltation? To be exalted, we first must place our faith in Jesus Christ, and then endure in that faith to the end of our lives. Our faith in him must be such that we repent of our sins and obey his commandments. Well, what does that mean? Well, there are required ordinances. First of all, you must be baptized. You must receive the laying on of hands to be confirmed a member of the church of Jesus Christ and to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So when I was baptized, when I was eight, I was baptized at a church camp out or something out in a lake. My grandfather baptized me. Probably the next week or a couple weeks later, the elders or priests or whatever they were of the church, uh, they laid hands on me, they prayed for me in the service, and that I would receive the Holy Spirit. That was the confirmation uh, at that, uh, what they would understand. But then brethren, or that is men, must receive the Melchizedek priesthood and magnify their callings in the priesthood. So there's a levels of priesthood. There's deacons and elders and uh, priests and high priests, and then there's the uh, Council of Seventy and Twelve and all of these different levels of Melchizedek priesthood. But you have to be a part of the priesthood then to receive that exaltation. You must receive the temple endowment. And once again, this is uh, exclusively the Latter-day Saint LDS Church based in Utah so that's where you have the temple ceilings, the marriage, uh, the ceilings for marriage, married for eternity, and all of that. And so these are the required things for exaltation. Then there are the Lord commands us all to. And uh, these are some of the things I say. Love God and our neighbors, keep the commandments, repent of our wrongdoings, search out our kindred dead, and receiving the save, receive the saving ordinances of the gospel for them. So once again, that's saying you need to do genealogy. And so uh, that's why I can trace back to my great-great-great-great-grandfather and beyond because uh, there's a lot of genealogical research that is done. Why? So that you can have the saving ordinances for the, your ancestors' uh, kindred dead, as it says here. And then it could attend our church meetings as regularly as possible. We, so we renew our baptismal covenants. Uh, love our family members, strengthen them in the ways of the Lord, have family and individual prayers every day, teach the gospel to others by word and example, study the scriptures, listen and obey the inspired words of the prophets of the Lord. Now, that last statement, listen and obey the inspired words of the prophets of the Lord, is not referring to the Bible. That is referring to the ongoing lineage of prophets that Mormonism would have within. I can remember as a boy, the the lay pastor of our church, priest, I don't know exactly what his level was, but he was the leader of the church. He was certainly one of the elders, and uh, he had a revelation from the Lord, and so he came one Sunday, and he shared that revelation with us as a church, and I don't remember what the revelation was. I don't remember it being anything uh, revolutionary or anything like that but he felt like he had that revelation so everyone can continue to have these revelations particularly those that are in the priesthood so this believes that they're restoring the true gospel now do we believe that we're re- we're uh restoring the true gospel as well yeah in a totally different way right so in a very different way, not through this supernatural manifestations, but through a study of the Bible and a restoration of what has been lost sight during the dark ages uh, of Bible truth. And so there's a similarity there. The Latter-day Saint movement believes that they have the true gift of prophecy. And that is very key. You see that book I have uh, up there, and if you can read it, the top says Holy Bible, and then Book of Mormon, and then Doctrine of Covenants, and uh, Pearl, of, Pearl of Great Price. Is that what it says? Yeah, Pearl of Great Price. And so these are the, uh, the canon, not canon is not the right word, but the uh, authoritative works within the Mormon church. And so uh, this a Bible I had when I was a boy. Now, mine was slightly different. Um, I had, and in fact, I have them here most of you have probably seen this, the Book of Book of Mormon. This is generally what the Mormon missionaries would give out. And then I had, this is, uh, it was actually my dad's, the Holy Scriptures inspired version. So this is the book that Joseph, the Bible that you would use, uh, that we used in uh, the church. And it is edited by Joseph Smith. Now, what were some of the, uh, the additions to it? Well, it's, I haven't compared exhaustively, so I can't tell you everything. Here is just a, an example or two. This is in Genesis, and Genesis, uh, well, in, in here. I don't know. This is not in, in your Bible, but Genesis 4, verse uh, 10 and 11, it says that blessed, this is Eve speaking, blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression, My eyes are open, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. And Eve, his wife, heard all these sayings and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed, and never would have known joy, known good and evil, and the joy of our redemption. And so she is saying here that. Uh, we're blessed because of our transgression. She's rejoicing because of their transgression, saying we never would have had children had it not been for our transgression. Another major difference here is there's 65 books in this uh, inspired version. The Song of Solomon is not in here. And uh, so uh, that's also a difference. And then Doctrine of Covenant. So we had three books. We had uh, the inspired version and the Doctrine of Coven- Book of Mormon and Doctrine of Covenants. And I used to have a Bible that had all three of those in there. Consequently, I personally like to have a Bible that is just a Bible because uh, I don't like, because of that history, I don't like anything else mingled with the Bible. I want the Bible to stand on its own. Now, why do they believe this true gift of prophecy? Well, there's several reasons. For my in-, in my case, it was simply what I grew up with and what was really kind of like a confession of your faith that took place very often. And so how do you determine, well, Doctrine of Covenants, uh, once again, and this is one of Joseph Smith's uh, additional teachings, but behold, I say unto you that your mind, you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you, therefore you shall feel that it is right. And so this is why if, if the missionaries come to your home and they give you a, a, a book of Mormon, they might even give you a reference to read and they'll tell you to pray and see if this is uh, God's word to you, basically. This is the reason, because Joseph Smith said, I'll cause that your bosom shall burn within you. They don't use that wording anymore. They talk about the Spirit testifying or something like that. And so their evidence is that the Spirit testifies to you that Joseph Smith's writings were true. Now what is dangerous about that? it's you're totally it's totally subjective it's totally up to feelings and impressions at that point isn't it and so it's completely subjective so that is primarily their evidence um this is from one of the prophets uh of the uh, of the church in utah the uh, salt lake branch mormonism but i think it's true mormonism must stand or fall on the story of joseph smith he was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground. And once again, this is a president of the church. This is not a someone that is antagonistic to Mormonism. If Joseph was a deceiver who willfully attempted to mislead people, then he should be exposed. His claims should be refuted and his doctrines shown to be false. And so notice what he began with there. Mormonism must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. And so that is why when the missionaries come, they're going to give you the Book of Mormon. They're going to tell you about Joseph Smith on the first, possibly second visit, because the entire church's foundation rests upon the idea that it is the restored church that Jesus Christ came and personally restored his truth his doctrine and his gift of prophecy and the Melchizedek priesthood through Joseph Smith and that you need to accept that. And so uh, this is really the foundation of that. And so they believe it's a true gift of prophecy. And I can remember, as I said, it would be like a statement of confession or a statement of belief that you're a firm believer in the writings of Joseph Smith. I can remember my great-grandmother at her funeral. My grandfather is doing the funeral, and as he's doing the funeral, and he says she was a firm believer in our three books, the Inspired Version, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine of Covenants. And so that was like the confession of faith. That is really what your belief is. Uh, And and your assurance of the correctness of where you are stands upon is uh, whether you accept Joseph Smith or not. The Latter-day Saint movement then, of course, believes that they are the true church. Why do they believe that? Because it was the restored church. Doctrine of Covenants, the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth. The church is true because it is the restored church. Fortunately, the gospel preached to it in correct organization were restored through Joseph Smith. Only in the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints, can we receive the true teachings, essential ordinances, and opportunities to serve that help us return to Heavenly Father. So what are are these saying? Well, what they're saying is that the Mormon movement is the true church because— Joseph Smith was communicated to by the father and Jesus, and they restored to him the true teaching that had been lost. And so, the official, I should have put this up, but the official wording is that the Bible is the word of God as long as it is translated correctly. Now, there's not a problem with that statement. We explain the thief on the cross through the uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. We'll go and we'll look at the original wordings and things like this. There's not a problem with that. But what does that mean? What that means is uh, the Bible is authoritative as long as it is, does not conflict with Joseph Smith's teachings. And so... I remember, and this might seem hard to believe, but I remember as a boy people talking about, oh, there's so many mistakes in the Bible. So this is what you would say at church. Why? Because if there's mistakes in the Bible, there are no mistakes in the restored gospel in what Joseph Smith taught. And so it is of much higher authority. Obviously, if you claim to be able to edit the Bible, not translate it from anything, but just simply make additions to it or deletions to it, obviously you're claiming to be above the Bible. And so in in practicality, they accept the Bible. The missionaries will bring a King James version of the Bible to your home and they will read verses from it. But in reality... The Book of Mormon and the teachings of Joseph Smith and the continuing lineage of living prophets are of higher authority than the Bible. And so if the Book of Mormon says it, if the Doctrine of Covenants teaches it, if the church has espoused it, it is of greater authority than the Bible. And so consequently, you can share lots of things from the Bible, but until the Bible becomes your primary source of authority. It's going to be hard for them to break loose from this identity of Mormonism that they've been a part of. And so it is, uh, and so that, Joseph Smith has restored the gospel. He's given the correct interpretation. So this is the word of God as far as it is interpreted correctly, but this is Interpreted correctly. This is translated correctly. It is the pure, restored gospel according to their theology and their understanding of it. And so, what else is significant? Why else do they believe that the true church? Because you have, a, and I, I, there's three different times, and I'm going to mix up some of the names, but Joseph Smith and Oliver Crowley, I believe, uh, were ordained to the Aaronic priesthood. And they were ordained to the Aaronic priesthood by um, John the Baptist, I believe, or someone. I'm going to get exactly which one's mixed up here. And then you have them returning, and Peter and James and John ordained them and restore the Melchizedek priesthood. And then you have uh, Elijah coming to Joseph Smith and giving the keys of the kingdom. And so because of this, and I've had discussions with some of the missionaries, and they'll say, well, we have the Melchizedek priesthood. What does that mean? Joseph Smith was ordained by these heavenly illuminaries, and he ordained his, success, his uh, co-workers, and they ordained others, and they ordained others. So now they have an apostolic succession, if you will, if you will not from Peter while he was on the earth, but rather from uh, Peter and James and John and Elijah and John the Baptist and these individuals that have been resurrected and have restored the kingdom. So then, because they have a restored priesthood, they also have a restored church organization, and thus you can have the true ordinances in there, and that's where baptism and baptism for the dead and temple ceilings and all of this come in. So, they believed in the true church because Joseph Smith, they accept Joseph Smith's writings as authoritative because the Melchizedek priesthood and these other priesthoods were restored to them and they have the apostolic organization of priest, high priest, and apostles, and council of 70, council of 12, all of that. And so they're very firm. And as I said, that was one of the hardest things for me right here, was to come to grips with the idea that Joseph Smith was not a true prophet. That was very difficult for me. And then the idea that's parallel with that, and that is then that the Latter-day Saint church is not God's true church. And so, but you can see both of those things, counterfeits here. The Latter-day Saint movement found their message in upstate New York. This is very interesting. I have just Google Maps up here, and I have three points here. The bottom point is Hiram Edson's farm. Now you go just a few miles from Hiram Edson's farm and you come to Hill Cumorah. That is where, Joseph Smith says, he received the golden plates from. And so right there, you go up north a little bit further. And like I said, when I put all of these into Google Maps, going to all three of these locations, none of them are more than 15 minutes apart. They are about, as a crow flies, about five to six miles apart is all. And then you have the Fox Sisters' home right there as well. And so all of these are beginning right around 1844, and uh, they're all in the same location. It's fascinating to me that it is there geographically. And so upstate New York, the Latter-day Saint movement began sharing their faith, In the 1830s. We talked about that. That is when their missionary movements really began. The Latter-day Saint movement suffered a big disappointment in 1844. And uh, another idea here, the Latter-day Saint movement teaches the importance of stewardship. So tithing and stewardship is a very important concept in the church. You should give, and there's, I have I think a statement here from the Doctrine of Covenants that's where it's from yeah doctrine of covenants that the system is a little bit different it actually has some similarity to systematic benevolence when the adventist church began developing the tithing system that those who have been thus tithed shall pay one-tenth of all their interest annually and this will be the standing law unto them forever and so tithing now it's interesting Uh, we don't have uh, the uh, hymnal uh maybe you have a hymnal here but I was sitting in a worship one time and flipping through the hymnal, uh, our Adventist hymnal. And as I was flipping through our Adventist hymnal, I was in the back and I came to a song that I didn't know and I looked down and I saw Raymond Gunn, that's my great uncle. And uh, I looked at the bottom and it said, copyright Reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so uh, it's A Diligent and Grateful Heart. I believe it's 639 in our hymnal. It's a nice song, and, uh, uh, but it's a song that talks about stewardship and tithing. And there's not very many hymns that deal with stewardship and tithing. And so when we compiled our hymnal, they found this song that dealt with stewardship and tithing and didn't have any doctrinal errors, uh, errors in it, and so it was placed in our hymnal. And it is. I mean, there's, it's a, I like the song. It's a nice song. I didn't know it until I was just flipping through and saw, oh, there's my great uncle. But the stewardship, concept of stewardship, we have a concept of stewardship as well. The Latter-day Saint movement has a form of a health message as well. And so you have stewardship, you have a health message, you have same location, you have same time period, you have the concept of the true church, and of the last church, and all of these things. Now, the health message, where does that come from? It's not really followed, but it was commented upon. I can remember being at our version of camp meeting at the time, and one of the apostles or leaders in the church was drinking coffee. Now, my grandfather always drank coffee, but it was, he was a, one of the leaders in the church, and he was drinking coffee, and I remember people talking about that because he was doing that. Because there's a statement about health in the Doctrine of Covenants that talks about, doesn't say coffee per se, but we'll read it here. It's two things. One is, here's one on strong drinks, or not for the belly, so alcohol. Again, tobacco is not for the body, neither for the belly. It does say that it can be used medicinally. And then it says, but again, hot drinks are not for the body or the belly. And that's understood to mean tea and coffee. So caffeine and alcohol and tobacco. Now, once again, as I said, the alcohol and tobacco are followed fairly well. Yeah, caffeine, probably not so much. Something else that's interesting is uh, just continuing on a few passages down Yea, flesh also of beast or of the fowls of the air, I the Lord have ordained for the use of man with thanksgiving. Nevertheless, they are to be used sparingly. And it is pleasing unto me that they should not be used only in times of winter or of cold or famine. So Joseph Smith was saying that really you shouldn't eat meat very much, only sparingly, and particularly when in the winter or in famine time when you don't have anything else. Now, that is followed even less. So I'm not even sure. We were, as I mentioned, our family was vegetarian. Not It was for health benefits. It was not because of this statement. I don't think I knew any other vegetarians in the church, although my great-grandmother, who was a lot closer to all of the, the pioneers in the church, she said that she still tried to eat meat only in winter, but I don't know how serious that was. And so, has a form of a health message. Latter-day Saint movement believes that they have a message to give to the entire world, and they're organized to take their message to the world as well. 160 countries. So, we Adventist Church has—I'm not sure exactly—192, 194, 190, somewhere in there. Um, and but they're, the Mormon Church is definitely spreading. There's lots of places overseas that I've been. Where you can see the iconic church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints there as well. And so you look at all of these things, around 18, developing in the 1820s and 30s, and growing, being a restorationist church, having the gift of prophecy, all of these things, health message there's a lot of parallels. I believe the devil was raising up the Mormon movement in order to be a counterfeit to draw people away and to give people a distaste for true prophets. And he was trying to counteract what God was going to do before God began that, or not before he began, but anyway, a little bit before that began to develop. And so, I was in the Latter-day Saint movement. I was in the uh, Community of Christ. I should say the Community of Christ has become, and it was becoming when I was in it, I was baptized into the Adventist church in 1994, I think. No, 1992. And uh, um, so I was particularly in the 80s and uh, uh, early 1990s. Do I remember it? And it was becoming much more of a mainline church. So the Community of Christ still has this foundation, but is much more similar to a traditional mainline Protestant church today, even though these things are still there. The, the uh, Latter- Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Utah is much more unique in its teachings and uh, all these things that we just went over. Now, when we look at Revelation, we see, does God say there's going to be a remnant church? He does, doesn't there? And when we look in Revelation, we can see that God was predicting the rise, not of Mormonism, but of his last day church. So what are some of the descriptions of it? These are points that why I came out of Mormonism into Adventism, because I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church is God's remnant church, his last day church. Rises around 1798 from Revelation 12. Revelation 12, 17, we know the verse, keep all the commandments of God, right? And what else else is in that verse? They're going to have the, in Revelation 12, 17, it says the testimony of Jesus. We go to Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, and the testimony of Jesus is what? The spirit of prophecy, right? And so God had foretold, In the book of Revelation, that there was going to be a remnant church, a last day church, that was going to arise in the 19th century after 1798, that was going to be proclaiming keeping all the commandments of God, and was going to have the testimony of Jesus, which God identified here in Revelation as the gift or the spirit of prophecy. Does the Seventh-day Adventist church, does it match that? I think I should have heard a loud amen there. (laughs) You know, we go through this in evangelistic meetings. We give Bible studies. We can be confident of our faith. I had a church member one time, and he said, oh, you know what? Can you, the Mormon missionaries are coming over. Can you come over with me? I said, sure. And so I got there a little bit before they did, and so I was sitting there on the couch with him, and he said, oh, uh, he, he always had encounters with them. He was a maintenance person in an apartment complex or condo, condominium complex. And they would walk around. And he said they just walked up to him and said, can we talk to you about Jesus Christ? And he said, well, what could I say? Of course I had to say yes. <laughs> and uh, so I got there. I was sitting on, the, sitting on the couch. I had my Bible there right beside me. And uh, the missionary, I think there was only one that day for some reason, walked in and said, oh, and he looked at me and says, why do you have a Bible there? I said, well, Russ, he, I mean, he invited me over and uh, you said you're going to have a Bible study or something, so I brought my Bible. And he's like, my faith does not depend on arguing the Bible. My faith is God testifying to me. You see that burning in the bosom that we quoted from, from Doctrine of Covenants? His faith was based not on the Bible. He didn't care what the Bible said. He did not come to study the Bible. He did not come to discuss the Bible. He came to try to share his authoritative restored scriptures to this uh, friend of mine. And so I can't remember how the discussion went from there. But to me it was so unique that why do you have your Bible there? My faith does not depend on the Bible. Well, I am thankful that my faith can rest upon the Bible. That it does not have to rest upon some transient feeling or something like that. That my faith, I can go to the Bible and say, God does have a remnant. He does have a last day church. Let's look at the description of it. It is going to keep the commandments of God, it's going to have the testimony of Jesus. That is the spirit of prophecy. But in the Bible, and in, it doesn't, the spirit of prophecy does not go like in Mormonism above the Bible, but the gift of prophecy, like all the other prophets, helps to direct back to the Bible. Very different paradigm there. Yes, they have a prophet. Yes, we believe that Ellen might had the gift of prophecy, and we're so grateful for the gift that he has given. But there's a different way of looking at it. Let me re- quote some here from What Sister White says, "'The Lord desires you to study your,' what does she say? "'Bibles. "'He has not given any additional light "'to take the place of His Word. "'This light is to bring confused minds to His Word, "'which, if eaten and digested, "'is as the lifeblood to the soul.'" So in Mormonism, the prophets' words are to take the place of the Bible. They're of higher authority than the Bible. But that is not the way that it is. We, We are grateful for the gift of prophecy that points us back to the Bible. And we see again, Brother Jay would confuse the mind by seeking to make it appear that the light God has given through the testimonies is an addition to the word of God. But in this, he presents the matter in a false light. God has seen fit in this manner to bring the minds of his people to his word, to give them a clearer understanding of it. It is not an addition to the Word of God, it is helping us understand and study the Word of God more. It does not take the place. And of course, the more famous statement, little heed is given to the Bible and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. By the way, if you continue reading that statement in in the Review and Herald where it's originally found, She is not saying you don't need the gift the lesser light. She is not saying you don't need the gift of prophecy. She's saying, oh, we need to be directed back to the Bible. And if we would read this light that God has given us, it would give us a deeper experience. We do need to heed the additional, uh, the light that God has given, but it is always to lead us back to the Bible. Notice, Notice what she says here. This probably is somewhat of a, uh, inference to uh, to Mormonism and Joseph Smith, those who boldly assume that they are prophets in this our day are often a reproach to the cause of Christ. And you can see that that is the case. When you have uh, um, uh, Joseph Smith was in jail multiple times, was accused of Um, multiple polygamy and all these different things uh, and having power and control it is a reproach to the cause of Christ something else interesting this is from word to the little flock which was published in the 18 um, 1840s later 1840s by James White the Bible is a perfect and complete revelation It is our only rule of faith and practice, but this is no reason why God may not show the past, present, and future fulfillment of his word in these last days by dreams and visions according to Peter's testimony. It seems here like he's responding to probably the uh, arguments that they were getting. Well, Joseph Smith is above the Bible and you're doing the same thing. And he says, no, the Bible is a perfect and complete revelation. But the Bible says there's going to continue to be the gift of prophecy, and so it's a fulfillment of the Bible. He continues on, "...true visions are given to lead us to God and His written word. But those that are given for a new rule of faith and practice separate from the Bible cannot be from God and should be rejected." So what is he saying? mormonism was giving a new rule of faith and practice and we're not even getting into how they didn't joseph smith didn't match the test of a true prophet but just here he was he was substituting a new rule of faith and practice and separating from the bible and james white says this cannot be from god should be rejected and so Going through, and these are, these are things I share with people when I'm studying the Bible with them or whatever. Not only is God's remnant church going to arise in the, after 1798, going to keep all the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus and the gift of prophecy, is going to preach worldwide. It's not going to be an isolated uh, group here or there. It's going to teach healthful living. The first angel's message says, fear God and give glory to him. We know certain ways that we do give glory to him. Give glory to whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? 1 Corinthians 10 31. And so this is a part of our message. We're going to proclaim God's judgment hour. The hour of his judgment has come. We are living in that time period. We're going to call people to worship their creator and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. These are biblical foundations of what God's last day people are going to be doing. We don't need to rely upon a feeling or upon some evidence or something taking the place of the word of God. This is what the Bible says, warns against Babylon the beast and its mark, has the faith of Jesus, and teaches that death is asleep. By the way, this is a key point when we look at, uh, maybe we'll talk about this um, some tomorrow, I had a man that we were, he came to evangelistic meetings. We studied with him for quite a while. And he was, I think he would have been considered a member of the Mormon church. I don't remember if he'd been baptized or not, but he probably had enough connection with him that they would have classified him as a member. And he started coming to our church. He passed away before uh, he was baptized. But, uh, and I'm, he kind of wavered a bit too, so I don't know exactly where, what would have happened. But when we were visiting, he said, you know what? The Mormon church cannot be true because the Bible teaches that death is a sleep. And he said, the Book of Mormon has the angel Moroni who was this dead person coming back and talking to Joseph Smith. It can't be true because of what the Bible teaches about death. I, that's not an, a way I would have used to explain it, but it's what clicked for him. <laughs> and uh, so, but it's an important part of our message and is looking for Jesus' soon return, from Revelation 12:17 and Revelation 14, God has a remnant, and I'm so grateful that God has called me and is calling others into His remnant church, not based on a feeling, not based on family tradition, but based on the word of God. And we can stand firm for the word of God. We have just — well, two minutes, a couple minutes. Are there any questions briefly? Are the Mormons uh, mandatory to go uh, door-to-door? And uh, have you, uh, as a Mormon in the past, gone yeah. door-to-door? Yeah, good question. So is it mandatory for, for Mormons to go door-to-door, and have I gone? So I, was, I left the church when I was about 13, was baptized as an Adventist when I was 14, so that was younger than when you would go on a mission. The, the church I was a part, Community of Christ, did not do those missions like that? So and so I probably wouldn't have done it like that anyway. The other aspect, is it mandatory? It's not mandatory, but remember we talked about exaltation, about becoming like God? You have to have these ceilings and these rites and things like this, and so if you want to experience some of those, and you're an able-bodied young person, then you need to go on a proselytizing mission, and then you can experience these, so it advances your path to exaltation and the celestial kingdom. So not mandatory, but be high inducements held out because of it. All right, one more. Is it, is it true that uh, uh, um, a person attending the Mormon, Mormon church cannot step into the temple of another denomination, like cannot come to your church? Is forbidden for them to attend your house of worship or is that uh, Jehovah Witnesses? So I don't believe that it's forbidden to go into another church. Um, It is you would not normally partake of communion with another church Uh, at least that's my recollection um, of what you shouldn't do. I remember that because when I was in Boy Scouts and we had communion service and everybody was there um, I didn't take of it. It seemed strange to me um, I still wouldn't, but uh, the I didn't partake of it then, and the church, the Sunday school teacher at least, thought that was the correct thing to do. So you wouldn't partake of communion, um, and so. but I don't know if there's a forbidding of going to another church. Now, it is true that we, unless you're initiated, you cannot go into the temple, their temples, and so you have to have... And I don't remember or know all of the details of what allows a person, uninitiated person, to go into one of the temples. But you can't go in unless you are a Mormon of some and have a certain ranking uh, within that. All right. So I'm happy to have any other questions, but our time is up for right now. The, The point I want to leave with you is that God has a remnant church. And we can know His remnant church based on His Word. And His Word identifies His remnant. It's not feeling the devil has brought up counterfeits. We don't have to be deceived by those counterfeits. We can try to help people come out of those counterfeits to the Word of God and proclaim God's last day message as part of His remnant. And I'm so thankful that God brought me out of darkness into His marvelous light. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for Your Love and kindness. We thank you that you draw us. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to be active proponents of your word, of your message. You've given us a message for these last days, and we pray that you will help us to share that message with others and help us to share the firm faith that we have on your word and a knowledge of you. And we pray for those that are in the Mormon movement. We know there are many honest people there. We pray that you will draw them and that they will be led to you and to your truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at mizda.org slash audio 2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.